It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. It feels as though Gary is a fitting name. Not only is a place that's so important in this story about a major leaguer murdered in his prime, but as a character in this story. And that's what it is. It's the place where the lives of two men crossed, two men who didn't know each other and never would. In this direction, moving away from the intersection a couple of blocks at a time, I'm walking toward one of Gary's greatest remaining landmarks and maybe its most famous address, just a mile or two up this same road where I'm walking now. 2300 Jackson Street. It's the childhood home of Michael Jackson and the Jackson family. In 1972, the Jackson Five, as they were known, were already a sensation for the Motown label with a string of number one R&B and pop hits. And they were a cultural phenomenon. They had their own TV show. And the youngest member would eventually, of course, light out on his own and become the king of pop. In that same year, 1972, Lyman Bostock, a son of the South and a child of Gary, was starting his own path toward a dream. Not on a stage, but on a field. A dream that he wanted to share with his family back here in Gary, and a way to make his family in LA proud as well. Family like Lyman's cousin, Carl Crawford, who was there to see that dream rise without ever knowing what it would cost. We were so proud. We are still proud. And uh, it was like, we made it. One of us finally made it. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and the story of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley. The story of the life, career, and death of Lyman Wesley Bostock. This kid's gonna be good. He's gonna have a heck of a year in the future in the big leagues. There were shocked reactions today from the baseball world to the shooting death of California Angels outfielder Lyman Bostock. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. You're essentially a slave to the master. And I just think he made a choice in that period of his life, focus on the movement and the struggle. I would become disenchanted because of the money situation. So the organization didn't care that much for me as a player because they showed me by the way they paid me.
Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Episode 3, Determining My Destiny. Lyman Bostock made a decision. His time at Cal State Northridge had been chaotic in a time of chaos. He was involved in a student protest in defense of a black athlete on campus, a protest that led to criminal charges and ultimately his own jail stay. His time also included two short but successful seasons on the baseball field, helping lead the Matadors to the Division II World Series. Just weeks later, in 1972, he left college baseball to begin a minor league career, signing with the Minnesota Twins. Life as a 26th round draft pick was hardly easy. It certainly wasn't glamorous. Oh my God, it was poor and pitiful. It was bad. That's Yuvine Brooks, Lyman's girlfriend at the time. The places you stay, I mean, it's just, it's not a lot of money in it. It's, it's just, you know, working working your way up. It's, it's not, you know, white collar. It's, it's the grunt work. Lyman's first stop was with Single A Charlotte in the Western Carolina League. There were 150 fans at his first game. He finished the season batting 294, one of the top hitters in the league. That offseason, Lyman returned home to play semi-pro ball alongside a promising high school senior named Kenny Landro, who would later become a pro teammate of Lyman's. Man, he was confident, arrogant, knew he was good. The fact that he was from from my area, you know, my hometown and everything. I always shared that with these guys like you that made me feel that I had a chance to get there also. Just put the work in and follow the path to try to get to Major League Baseball. And he was real good to me. I mean, there's times where we would always go out to eat and everything, and he would always help me off the field. In the spring of 73, Lyman was elevated to double-A ball in Orlando 
There, he overcame a cracked rib to become the only 300 hitter on the team. That offseason, Lyman made the biggest off-field decision of his life to that point. In the winter of 74, he married Euvene Brooks, who he dated since their first month in college together. It was a small ceremony in Los Angeles. It wasn't very formal, honestly. We just decided, let's get married before the season starts. And I go, okay. So we went to the courthouse downtown in Los Angeles, got married. And I think two days later, he was off to spring training. The groom was now off to AAA Tacoma in the Pacific Coast League. It was a league that had a rich history of producing major league talent. Lyman Shine, an all-star hitting 333, leading his team in average stolen bases and outfield putouts. Lyman's friends on the West Coast were watching his progress at every stop. This is Reggie Williams, a college friend. We'd follow his stats, A-ball, double-A, triple-A, and he was doing great. He was doing great. We'd get the uh, Lyman Bostock report. <laughs> and, and to a man, I remember everybody saying, you know what, this guy is going to be in the bigs for a long. That's what Lyman's family back in Gary had believed for a long time already. Here's his cousin, Roll Tack, picturing Lyman on a field. My first thought was always a gazelle because the way he would run. He had smooth strides, and he had a real passion for the game. His heart was always there first more than anything else. After just two and a half years in the Twins' farm system, Lyman believed he was ready to get to the show. What about you? You've got a doggone good average over 330. My type of game is mostly line drives and alley shots. And if I can help the team with that, then I don't know. I don't think nobody ever replaced Harmon because uh, those tone run hitters just not like they used to be. That's Lyman speaking at spring training in 1975. Why can you make it in the pros? Why will you make it in the pros this year in the big leagues? Well, I can't say exactly say I will make the team. My, my, my objective is to make the team like every year and to do the best I can wherever I play. My intention this year was like last year, was to make the Major League Club. I didn't get invited, but I thought I should have, but it didn't make that much difference. I just wanted to see what it was like to come over here and uh, play with some of the big-time ball players. He was determined to make it to a place his father had never reached, the Major Leagues. Lyman Bostock Sr. was a Negro Leagues player in the 1940s, he batted 308 for his hometown team, the Birmingham Black Barons. But his prime came before Major League Baseball's color line was broken by the legendary Jackie Robinson in 1947. Lyman Sr. left his wife and son behind when Lyman was just two years old. The two had very little relationship or contact beyond a name. Here's Lyman's cousin, Carl Crawford. When he was at Northridge, a scout that remembered his father. I remember your father when he played. And so finally, what happened was the scout stopped talking to Lyman. And he said, I don't know that old man. 
Lyman didn't play to honor his father, but he wanted to help the family that had been with him all along, through Little League, high school, college ball at Northridge. The odds of a high school senior varsity player making the major leagues are less than one half of 1%. If Lyman knew that, he didn't care. And when his opportunity came that spring, he shined. Despite breaking his index finger midway through spring training, in late March, he got the news. Lyman was named the starting center fielder for the Minnesota Twins for the 1975 season. Faster than anyone thought, Lyman had made it. Here's his brother-in-law and friend, Bill Brooks. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) It's like, wow. When I watched him play in college at that time as a kid, you know, there was nothing that crossed my mind that, hey, he could someday be a major league baseball player. Hearing that he made it to the majors, man, was like, wow. I mean, I was thrilled knowing that, you know, he was raised by a single mom and being able to be in a position to help his mom and others and just knowing who he was, for him to have that opportunity, it was awesome. Lyman made his major league debut April 8th as the Twins' lone rookie starter. The Hall of Famer and seven-time batting champion Rod Carew was Lyman's teammate in Minnesota and took him under his wing right away. Lyman Bostock, Carew's most ardent disciple. The first time I saw him, you know, I said, uh, this kid's going to be good. He's going to have a heck of a year in the future in the big leagues. And um, once I started talking to him, it was like, father talking to son. He paid attention, you know, never interrupted things that I was trying to get over to him. But here's a guy that was so intense on learning and playing the game. And hitting was one of his, uh, the best things that he, that he did in the game. Lyman's first home game in Metropolitan Stadium was April 15th. He faced Hall of Famer Nolan Ryan, who'd thrown three no-hitters in the last two seasons. He singled a left in his first at-bat. Patrick Ricey was the Twins' beat writer at the time, who noticed Lyman's smooth swing right away. He was always on plane, a perfect gap swing. You know, it was line drives in the gap, right or left. He wasn't jumping out at pitches. He could stay back. Right away, you could you see that swing. So did the Twins' owner, Calvin Griffith, who was not one to praise players easily, or at all, because he didn't want to pay them, which would become an issue later for Lyman. Calvin. Griffith, he loved the guy from the start. He started talking about Lyman that first spring, and uh, we we didn't really know Lyman was going to be the center fielder, but when you talked to Calvin, uh, you knew that uh, they had big plans for him. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lyman's first test as a major leaguer came fast. Two weeks into his career, he crashed into the center field wall at the Oakland Coliseum in a game against the A's. He was knocked out cold by the force of the collision. One account said it took him five minutes to regain consciousness. As a result of the play, Lyman took a dozen stitches above his right eye and needed surgery to his right ankle. No team officials came to the hospital, something Lyman remembered a few years later. In this episode, quotes from Lyman that were not recorded by audio or video will be read by his brother-in-law, Vincent Brooks, like this quote Lyman gave to the New York Times. Nobody from the front office came to see me in the hospital. Some of the clubhouse kids did, but nobody from the front office. I don't recollect that anyone from the front office even called. That's a small thing, but it carries weight and it will carry over. His only visitor from the club was the Bat Boy. Here's Yuveen. Well, you don't really feel like you're valued. I'm not important enough for you to even send anyone over to see how I'm doing. Yeah, it definitely was like the red flag that, okay, this is, this is going to be interesting. It was the end of June before Lyman returned to the club, and he struggled to regain his form after the injury. Lyman looked back on those rookie challenges, telling the sporting news. I wasn't cool, man. When you're a rookie, you want to do everything in one week. It's hard to remember you've got six months to do it. Like I said, I wanted everything right away. I wanted too much too soon. I wanted to be a star in one day. The veteran Rod Carew, was there to help him. Before a ball game, we would always go over the pitcher and, and see what he got us out with the last time and what he's going to try and do to us this time. And, and he was very interested in that because um, when he went up to hit, you could see that confidence come out in him. Well, you know, Rod is a hell of a ball player, and I respect him more than I respect anybody if you're going to talk about baseball because the compliments that he's had and it's been honored to play with Rod. Ultimately, after missing more than two months and playing with an ankle fracture that took months to fully heal, Lyman hit 282 his rookie year. Lyman came into the 1976 season with more experience and more confidence, but without a contract he agreed to a one-year deal for the same pay he'd made as a rookie, $20,000 for the season, $1,000 more than the league minimum. He explained why to the Sporting News. I took what the man offered me. I signed right away to get it out the way, off my mind. This fit the reputation of the franchise and its owner, Calvin Griffith. 
Lyman's teammate on the Twins, Eric Soderholm, knew this firsthand from his own attempt at negotiating. He had a reputation for being very tight with the buck. And when I told him I wanted a $10,000 raise after hitting 276, he opened up his drawer and he pulled out a piece of paper. And he had like 12 things on the piece of paper. Look here, you popped up with the bases loaded on April 10th. You hit into a double play on April 28th, cost us the game. You made an error on June 1st, cost us the game. I mean, he literally had a list of 12 to 15 reasons why I should be happy that I'm in the big league and be satisfied to be making the minimum salary after three years in the big leagues. And I said, Mr. Griffith, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I feel like I deserve at least a $10,000 raise. He said, you can go sell fish in Miami. <laughs> Honest to God. Nineteen seventy-six would prove to be Lyman's breakout season, especially at the plate. Here's the pitch. Bostock swings at a bounding ball to the left, the base hit inside the bag. He may try for two. Kemp up with the ball. There goes Bostock to second. The throw is high and gets away. Holding it second is the batter Bostock. By mid-May, he was hitting a remarkable 384. By the All-Star break, he was still third best in the American League in batting. That July, the Twins hosted an old-timers game at their stadium, including Negro League stars from the 40s and 50s. That old-timers game featured Lyman Bostock Sr., making this the only day the son would ever share the same field with his father. Bostock Sr. was 58, his son 25. Here's Patrick Ricey, the Twins beat writer at the time. I'm not sure how much the Twins ran this past Lyman. I'm not sure what it was, if they thought they were doing Lyman a favor by bringing in the old man. He could barely fit in a uniform. But the funny thing is, the first time he came up, they threw him a pitch and he hit a line drive. He looked like the kid, you know, boom. He just, I remember him hitting that line drive. And I said, well, now we know where that comes from. I think publicly, Lyman wanted to make sure that Everyone knew that he had no time for the old man, right? No time for dad. He was not going to give the twins credit for bringing the old man back. I'll tell you that. In the weeks following the game, Lyman was asked by different reporters about his father. He told the Baltimore Sun. He played in the 40s and 50s, and he was one of the best around. But I really don't think I would have played baseball if I had stayed with him. He's a perfectionist, and I am too much like him. And later, he was even more blunt, saying to the New York Times, My father helped teach Willie Mays, but he never taught me. Lyman's wife, Yuvine, knew the relationship between father and son was distant, if there at all. He never really talked about him a whole lot. I don't know how much he saw him. He was saying that he hadn't really spent a lot of time with him at that point. I know there was uh, efforts to change that, but up until that point, there wasn't a lot of communication. Whatever angst his father caused, Lyman remained one of the league's top hitters. During that season, Lyman told the Minneapolis Tribune, I made up my mind that this year, I'm not going to be overshadowed by anybody. If I get the publicity on my side, fine. If I don't, that's fine too. 
but this is the year that people are going to remember me. He's in contention now. He's third in the league in hitting right now. By that September, Hal McRae and George Brett were leading the league in hitting, and Lyman was right behind them. His average would slip as he headed to a late-season series at Comiskey Park against the White Sox. Visiting Comiskey was always special to Lyman because of the family who'd come from Gary to see him. Oh, he looked forward to going to Chicago. He had uh, a lot of relatives that lived in Gary, and they would come out to, you know, to the game and support him. So it was always a, a time that he would look forward to seeing family and performing for them. One of the uncles who rarely, if ever, missed a game in Chicago was Tom Turner. He felt good about Gary. He felt like this was one of his second homes. He didn't know too much about it because he left when he was very young, but uh, he always remembered coming back, and he came back. Lyman finished that season hitting 323, fourth best in the American League, behind the Royals' George Brett. Believing he'd earned a raise, Bostock met with Twins ownership. He sought a four-year deal at $200,000 a year. Ownership countered with a one-year offer for $50,000. After finishing fourth in the American League in batting in 1976, Lyman made the same salary in 1977 as he'd made his first two seasons, $20,000. Lyman's reaction to the Twins' refusal to pay him was clear. He told the Long Beach Independent Press-Telegram that season, I'm not going to be humiliated like my father was. Times have changed. He had no choice. Now every player has the right to determine his destiny. I'm going to determine my own. He also said, to the Los Angeles Times, My father played in the Negro Leagues for nothing. I'm not going to perpetuate the humiliation of my family. Whatever bitterness he felt toward ownership, he didn't carry it into the clubhouse or onto the field. Simon Bostock finds a hit to right. Carew streaks around third and scores for the backdoor slide. By July, Lyman was hitting 331, fourth best in the American League, behind league leader and teammate Rod Carew. Left out of the All-Star game, Lyman's frustration started to grow, and Carew understood. We had a good relationship where we could talk about anything, and um, we became good friends. You know, he, he was right. The old man didn't want to pay. And, you know, I used to tell him, I said, if you can go someplace else and get paid the way you should be, I would go. Lyman was outspoken in his criticism of the Twins over the summer, telling the L.A. Times, They're playing with my mind. They figure if they keep me and not trade me, they can try to ruin me any way they can. But they're just trying to drown a fish. I'll be okay. After Lyman would leave Minnesota, he would sum up his time and contract situation there simply. I was pretty much happy until I found out how the operation was being ran. And 
I would become disenchanted because of the money situation. So the organization didn't care that much for me as a player because they showed me by the way they paid me. And I thought, if I'm going to get something, I might as well get it now. Lyman finished the season second in batting behind Carew. He hit 336, the exact same average at home as on the road. He'd bet on himself and now was about to cash in. You know, most football players don't get a chance to come back to their home and play. And I think it's a great thrill for me to be able to come back to California and, and try to thrill the fans like I did in Minnesota. The 1978 season was approaching. And with it, there would be fame and fortune, scrutiny and struggle. It was a season that would cost Lyman his life. On the next episode of Wesley, after signing one of baseball's biggest contracts, Lyman has the worst slump of his career and makes a stunning decision. He said, I'm going to give the money back for this. I'm not going to take any salary for this month. I'm going to give the team back my money. That was the first and last time that anyone I know in any sport ever said, I'm doing crappy. I'm going to give back my money. That's next time on Wesley. Wesley is produced for Fox Sports Audio in conjunction with Blue Duck Media. It's reported, written, and hosted by me, Tom Rinaldi. Executive producers are Eric Shanks, Charlie Dixon, and me for Fox Sports. Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin for Blue Duck Media. Sound mixing and original scoring from Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Mike Goldstein. Audio field recording from Alan Chow. The terrific Jen Roman is our producer and production manager. Script consulting and research by the beautiful mind of David Sabino. Additional production and research from the quartermaster, Quincy Tucker. Production support from Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Ben Redmond. Special thanks to Yuveen Whistler and her family, the Lyman Bostock family, the incomparable Willie Weinbaum, Major League Baseball, and ESPN.